Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. I had to think for a second because it's been a while. It's been a while, but we're (laughs) back, and we're happy to be back. Yolando has been taking a very wise and um, deeply needed three-week vacation. It was glorious. Which was, I'm so happy for him. I also just want to say to the world that sometimes you have to do what you have to do and you do it gladly. And also, I am of the opinion that for those three weeks, you produced, although did not preach, but produced worship for your congregation. So I am of the opinion that that doesn't really, really count as a vacation. In a vacation, you should be able to really let completely go. And so I think it just says a lot about your commitment and honor and integrity that you stood in the gap. And I do think, you know, that was probably necessary and what had to happen. But I also just, if anybody out there is thinking, must be nice to take three weeks off, (laughs) I would like them to know that he did and also did not. So, but we're, we're very glad to be back together and we are podcasting at the Grove today, which is awesome. And there are a lot of people in this building doing Freedom School. And so literally anyone could any run moment. through this place. <laughs> you have no idea what might happen. So that makes it fun. I was going right? to say it could be really exciting. <laughs> could be. Could be. So what has been astonishing you, friend? <laughs> well, um, I need to go back several weeks or a couple of weeks to the end of June while on vacation. Um, I did not watch the news much um, hardly any at all, Um, but I spent a lot of time watching the Olympic trials, and I'm still living in the... (coughs) Sorry, it wasn't COVID. It was coffee going down the wrong way. (laughs) Not COVID. (coughs) You're still living in In the... In the afterglow of of Simone Biles. She is just incredible. Um, This black woman... um, who was being called the greatest gymnast of all time. And uh, it was incredible watching her. And uh, when she was um, um, in the trials, Olympic trials in St. Louis, I believe, um, I think they said it was the largest gymnastics Olympic trial crowd in U.S. history. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're there, many people, to see her. But also, you can you could feel this kind of energy, even watching it on television. People were kind of sensing, oh, wait, we've come through this pandemic. We're together. We get to do this. And so that was exciting as well. But mostly it was about uh, Simone Biles and her, um, not only her athleticism, but just her spirit. I'm inspired by her uh, determination, her dedication, the joy of the sport, um, you know, she is a victim of uh, that doctor. Um, I believe his name was um, or is well, Larry Nasser. Yeah, I was going to say, he's, we should just not even name well, him, but he, sure. yes, she she was uh, abused by, assaulted yeah, by him. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, and she has said in an interview that um, she had suicidal thoughts and um, to come through that and to be as... Um, well and to perform at the level that she's uh, performing at is uh, for me inspiring and even though she has competitors it seems that she 
still just finds joy and finds life in just getting better, competing against herself. Um, Well, and I think, I mean, she's so interesting to watch to me in two ways because, A, she's doing things that the authorities and the experts in her field say can't do aren't her possible, age. <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, and and the, and so I, I appreciate that. Just, I mean, whatever. I relate everything back to being a pastor in the church, and that's not always cute. But I do think that, I mean, obviously to be a part of a community of people who have been doing what you're trying to do for a long time is a great gift. Mm-hmm. And it's only a fool who would say, nobody who's ever done this before knew anything worth paying attention to, and I'm just going to discover it all. You know, everything that's worthy is being done by me right now. No one who came before has anything to offer me or, or anything to teach me. A fool would say that. Uh, but I also think sometimes in different fields where there are established authorities and expertise, we can get to the other end of that spectrum in a really dangerous way of just saying like, well, these are the establishment people, these are the authorities, these are the experts, so all that is possible is what these people say and think are possible. And I think she's such a wonderful example of someone who is both, obviously she's she's not, you know, being disrespectful or spit, but she's not allowing what has happened in the past to be an arbitrary limit on her present or her future, which I think is really helpful. And I do agree with you. And I think, well, A, so I should say, I think it's really important as as disciples and as people leading and forming communities that we, on the one hand, are just deeply interested and humble and ready to learn from people who have gone before and uh, you know we talk a lot about I think one of the danger in our traditions in the PCUSA is that people in the PCUA USA tend to only want to learn from other people in the PCUSA and I just think that's so um, for smart people that's so silly I mean to assume that the the only thing that's being done that we can learn from is being done on our little branch of the body of Christ Um, so obviously it's just deep wisdom to want to learn from what God is doing in other places. Um, and also you, you have to say my primary teacher and my primary, um, my, my primary model is, is Christ and God is always doing a new thing. And so if you have a sense that something is necessary or possible or, or that you're called to do it just because experts say it can't be done or it shouldn't be attempted, that doesn't mean that that should have primacy over the way that the Holy Spirit might be leading you or guiding you. And I think we've both discovered just how true that is because we we met as a part of this Transformation Pilot Project, which was very much about going in and adopting a posture of humility and listening to, I mean, believers, but people from a different part of the body of Christ who were there to say, hey, there's some really important stuff you don't know and you don't understand and we're going to teach you. And you you had to not be a fool and think, I don't need to know anything these people know. But then also there are some points where, I, I mean, I, I know they said to me and they might've said to you like, hey, you can't be a multi-ethnic church. That doesn't work, right? right? Mm-hmm. And so that was the point where I had to say like, look, I I have allowed you to lead me way past my comfort zone and way past my preferences and way past my understanding, but I'm standing on this right here because 
um, I know that that's not true, or I know that that is um, not that that's not how it is in the kingdom of God. So to say that that can't be how it is in the church, which is an outpost of the kingdom of God, is not relevant. So I, you know, I make that connection between watching her basically do these moves that people say aren't possible, and to do these moves that people literally penalize her for and refuse to recognize. And she's just saying, you know what? I, I care what these people think. I've been formed by this community. I accept that they have certain like uh, they have certain power over me and yet still mm -hmm. I'm going to do what it's in me to do. And I'm not going to allow myself to be limited by, you know, my, um, the community that formed me. And I think that's so wise sure. and what you said about the joy of it, because yeah. I think so we can learn so much from that, that sometimes we function in responsibility and anxiety and drive for success, right. whatever that looks like. Right? And, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the only way that you kind of get the courage and the motivation to do that kind of, um, that work of going beyond what people thought is possible is if you're doing it for sheer joy. Because she's doing it for sheer joy. So at the end of the day, however they rank her, however they score her, ultimately does not matter to her because she's in it for the joy of doing this Thing that the Lord has gifted her to do. And that should be how we pastor. Another thing I like about her story is that even though she is obviously um, a very strong competitor, she just has a real generosity of spirit. There's another woman on the team, mm -hmm. an African-American woman, Jordan Childs, um, who was living in Washington State. And uh, she got to the place where she felt like, you know, as an African-American woman, the sport didn't want her. She um, I don't know if she would have said depression, but that's what I picked up. Those are my words, not hers. Um, and um, she, Simone invited her to Houston. She said, come, come train with me. Yeah. <laughs> come train at my gym, the, the gym that my parents own. And that was the turnaround for this uh, uh, other gymnast, Jordan. And I was like, you know, other people would have been like, no, you're my competitor. I'm, my goal is to defeat you, not to help you get better. Yeah, and I, I yeah, I think we can learn so much yeah. from that. That like she and has. How, well, I'm, I'm, I'm making yeah. the, the, the leap to pastors can be the same way, right? We are doing the same work. We are in the same family, on the same team, and yet sometimes, too often, when pastors get together, it can be... Um, Let's compare numbers. Right, and and we can be functioning in a scarcity mindset Absolutely. of like, yes. if you win, then I lose. Yes. Instead of the truth, mm -hmm. clearly witnessed to in scripture and and lived reality with Jesus, which is, you know, the kingdom of God is a place of freedom and a place of abundance. And if all we want to do is please God, and if all we want to do is be faithful to God's will for our lives, then there's absolutely no... There's no scarcity in mm -hmm. that, and, mm -hmm. and we can cheer one another on. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I wish that's such a great story. It's such a great model, and, I, and I'm glad that it is being lifted up anywhere, and I wish that we're not such a rare story in the body yeah. of Christ because yeah. we should be leading the way yeah. in that, um, in that sense of just finding our joy, not just in our own self-interest, but finding our joy primarily in the joy of our brothers and sisters. Yeah. And I feel like... I read a scripture about that, well, right? Ooh, yeah, <laughs> yes. somewhere. Well, oh. and, it, and she also illustrates the importance of just showing up in spaces 
and being who you are, right? Because I remember growing up in the 80s, and at that time, gymnasts, that was my phone, gymnasts were all like skinny white girls, right? And then there was um, Dominique Dawes, and mm -hmm. there was um, Gabby Douglas, right? And just showing up, being who you are, changes things. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really, really true. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a great story. And I also just have to say, I just kind of love a lot that you watch women's <laughs> gymnastics and that you watch, you know, that you enjoy it and that you look for, you know, that, that you look for wisdom in it. And I think that says a lot, a lot about you. So that is really great. Um, it's cool. Cool, cool, cool. So what's astonishing you? Um, well, I think... I think um, it's just been such an interesting season of returning to um, a new phase of life and community together, and it has been great. And also just really interesting because, I mean, it's annoying saying this because it's such a cliche, but obviously nobody is, quote, coming back to pick up from where they left off. And so just like rediscovering one another and how we've been how we've grown and changed and been shaped by this experience and by our time apart and 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 just walking into this space trying to have really um, open hands and not and just to trust God to trust God when things look different to trust God when um, the whatever fantasies you had about the grand return don't look you know they I mean, they, they're not reality, and, and that's okay. And um, to, to operate in the values of the kingdom, which is not, which is not a scarcity mindset and which is not you know, fear-based, but it, it is just interesting. And I think what has been astonishing me is I've been trying to be more conscious lately of um, having what um, Brene Brown calls a brave conversation with mm -hmm. someone, which is, I think, better language than a confrontation because that can can really just I, I think the connotations around that word of conflict or confrontation are such that a lot of people think like oh you know danger danger that's not loving or that's not yeah. right or something you know I've also heard people say hard conversation yeah but brave conversation brave conversation is really yeah. is really great and I think you know looping back around to the conversation we had on our walk about um the preaching text for this week but this idea of like if we're really if we're really going after unity a unity formed by the holy spirit and a unity that is expressed in love then avoiding um avoiding what is difficult and avoiding what is painful isn't really an option it, it might appear to be an option in other spaces because it's easy to have the appearance of unity if what people are doing is showing up and faking it, um, showing up and playing nice, um, showing up and then leaving and talking about one another instead of to one another. Um, and I just have been realizing that um, I need to um, be more intentional about modeling what I think is healthy for a life and be this community, which is having brave conversations um, where if you notice a pattern or a dynamic or something, you enter in, you, you talk to the person and you enter in with no agenda and 
you really enter in from a, a I mean, this all sounds so jargony and woo-woo-y, but it just is really true. You enter in. I love it when you say woo-woo-y. I just, I mean, I just like, this is things that like, if I had read a book about this 15 years ago, I'd have been like, oh, can't stand this stuff. And now I realize that it's just really true that, you know, to come into a conversation and to be able to, to tell the truth about what's causing you pain or what you think might be dangerous or what you think might be harmful but to come in from a place of humility and love and a, and a spirit of curiosity. So really not walking into the conversation certain that you already know what's happening. Like mm-hmm. I'm coming into this conversation, I'm going to teach this person a lesson or I'm going to, you know, but to enter in and say like, here's what I know. I I have observed this and this and this, and here are my concerns. And then, you know, I, I just want to listen to how do you see it? Well, and if I'm going to have that kind of a brave conversation, I have to set my mind to do three things. Mm-hmm. Number one, to be honest, mm-hmm. because it's so easy for me to say, to, to not say what I'm really thinking and feeling, mm-hmm. right? Did this hurt your feelings? No, that it's fine. Everything's fine, right? Mm-hmm. But number one, be honest. Number two, um, I've got to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And number three... I need to be transparent. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I can do those three things, and sometimes I can do one and not the other two, and I notice that I I just don't communicate well. And I I really try in those times to set my mind to do those three things. And it's it's really hard. And I think, like, what is interesting and the reason that we avoid those conversations is because – a, we tend to assume that we know the other person's story, and often we don't, right? And I think that's how the enemy of our souls keeps us stuck, is by saying, like, oh, there's just sort of whispering to us that, oh, there's no point. You, you shouldn't talk to this person. They are who they are. You know, um, this is how they're operating. This is what they care about. These are their values. You're not going to change that. So just, you know, And you deal can get with into it. a real place of self-righteousness. You can get right. into a real place of self-righteousness, or you can get into a real place of um, resentment mm-hmm. or resignation. Um, and so I think to enter into the conversation and say, you know, this might be a painful conversation, but I want to have it because this person is my brother, this person is my sister, and I really trust that the Holy Spirit has brought us into community together for a reason and for um, a, a place of shalom, right? So mutual blessing. And so I need to be I need to be honest. And I think the reason that we don't want to be honest is we think like, well, what's the point? I can't fix it. And that's where it's really helpful to do some theological reflection and go, well, baby, why did you think that you needed to fix it? <laughs> like, why did you think that the only force at work in this relationship was your love, your wisdom, your kindness, your ability to be patient, right? Like the reason you have a brave conversation and that you go to someone in vulnerability and just kind of admit like, I'm stuck and I don't know how to fix this, but I really need to be honest with you and see not so much if you can change or if you can explain it to me, but to say, if we can come to this space of vulnerability, um, the Holy Spirit is in the middle of us and maybe just maybe the spirit is capable of doing really good um, and sort of eternally fruitful things mm-hmm. when we um, are honest about a problem instead of just avoiding it or assuming 
that this is all there is and this is as much as we can hope for. So I think what I've been astonished about lately is just over and over again, I think especially because of the big break of the pandemic and coming back and a lot of sort of systems and things that that happened on autopilot aren't happening anymore. And so we're just having to go back and figure out, well, now how do we do this and how do we do that? And and so, you know, it just has required um, a lot of, you know, several brave conversations, scary conversations for me. And I mean, I, I just, it's, it's <laughs> humbling slash humiliating to admit that's what's astonishing me <laughs> is how astonished I am to continually discover that, like, oh, God is in this place. Oh, God is at work. Oh, it is not, like, just because I'm approaching a conversation thinking, like, well, this isn't going to go well, and there aren't any possible solutions, and naming it is just going to make it worse, and then realizing, like, oh, look at God being God. All all by God's self. And so I'm grateful. I'm, I'm so, so grateful um, and I'm astonished by God's goodness, and I'm also just astonished by my astonishment, not in the sense that I would ever want to take that for granted, but, like, honestly, like, I continually find myself really surprised, like, oh, I talked to this person, and it was hard, and then looked like disaster, and then 24 hours later, look, look at what goodness has grown out of just having a brave conversation and trusting that actually again, we say this over and over again, like, this is not my church. It's not your church. It's not our church. It's God's church. And God is going to do wonderful things in spite of us. But imagine what could happen if we participated in I love that. that place. I don't know if it's First or Second Chronicles where Israel is being attacked by three enemy nations. Oh, I love this story. And um, First Chronicles. Is it First well, Chronicles? Well, you taught it to me. Well, you pointed I, I it out to me. I can never remember which, which I book. I think it's chapter 20. It's chapter 20. I don't know if it's First or Second Chronicles, but I think it's First. Um, and they're under attack. Three enemy nations have gotten together to, to attack Israel. And uh, the army's on the way. And uh, the king is warned. And they gather the people to pray. And I love the prayer. The prayer says, well, first, this, God, you, you see what's happening. Right. You see what these people are doing. And then there's the line, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Yeah. Like. <laughs> and, that, uh, <laughs> and I think we, we spend so much time and energy trying to never get to that place. Yes. We spend so much time we and energy. fix it, be in control. Or just turn around and run the other way, True. right? Yes. Like, I think we're called to do this, but I see ahead a gap I don't know how to fill. Yeah. So I guess we're not called. Let's go do something yeah. that's more more reasonable or more possible. And so I think we don't ever get to that place if we can control it, which means a lot of times we never discover how faithful God is because we continue to operate in our own strength. And I think God, God shows up like God is so gracious. God will bless even the things that we do that God didn't ask us to do, but yet we never discover what what God is willing to do in our midst because we never move beyond our own competency. Yeah. So, yeah. I was on a Zoom call with elders uh, last month, and um, I remember there was a situation, and uh, we were trying to figure it out. And finally, I said, "Friends, I I just don't know what to do," and we just need to pray. And mm-hmm. you're right. We do fight getting to that place 
but ultimately it's it's liberating and <laughs> because the culture teaches us in general but even when the culture tries to market christianity it markets christianity as a self-help project right mm -hmm. so like you get serious about jesus by praying this prayer participating in this program doing this ministry reading this book and, and then you'll get results so it's all action oriented and return on investment and the and, and so we don't expect to experience what most people whose stories are captured in the Bible clearly experienced, which is life with God is a lot of fumbling around in the dark, like right. a lot of fumbling around in the dark and not being quite sure what's going on and then discovering in hindsight, oh, wasn't the Lord in this place all along and I didn't know I it, didn't right? Know it. That's that's so much the common experience of a life of faith and yet our expectations are more shaped by capitalist consumer culture and we think like god is a project mm -hmm. that we're going to excel at and um, or god is a product <laughs> right so anyway so that is what i'm astonished at is that god is god is faithful and mm. and it's fun to discover it in this new season and just really helpful to keep being focused on that when i, I mean i read a, an article another the other day that a pastor wrote about you know, the the pandemic was a marathon and we were all in this marathon as, pa I mean, as people in general, but mm -hmm. as pastors, it was a marathon. And then we got to the finish line and then all of a sudden discovered that now we're running a second marathon, right? Wow. That this sort of, this season of gathering again and figuring out what life looks like on the other side is not just like, phew, now we can go back to what we know how to do. No, we no, can't. No. <laughs> um, wow. And so it is like you, you, I mean, I thought it was a great metaphor. Like you get to I the finish line and you think like, oh, I'm few. And all of a sudden people are like, nope, take, give me your medal. Here's a new number. Get going. Get going. And I, and what she was saying in her article, which I thought was really helpful, she was like, you know, we could just decide not to run it, right? Like we could just show, slow down and decide to walk with our friends and not approach this as if it's some grueling, heroic mm. feat that we should, you know, potentially almost kill ourselves trying to get it over with and just say like, no, this is the life of faith. The life of faith is being led by God, not orienteering. And we don't have a clear destination and we're, you know, in our earthly vision and we don't always control what's happening. And that's okay because we know who does and we know the end of the story. And so we can have joy here in the middle and just do the things that we've been gifted to do in a spirit of humility and love with an expectation of God being good to us. Yeah. So anyway, what are you thinking about? Well, um, this Sunday, <laughs> this follows right into what we were just talking about. This Sunday is our return to in-person services. And mm -hmm. so all of those issues are front and center for us. And um, I was asked to write an article for our um, newsletter. And, you know, I don't do a lot of writing outside of sermons. Um, but I woke up with this inspiration. Um, what came to mind as we go back to in-person services, I, I thought back to my 20s, you know, when I was single. I remember almost every Friday, or many Fridays, I would um, get a pizza, <laughs> some ice cream, and pick up a video at Blockbuster. 
<laughs> right. You're Where? So, you're so old. I, I know, right? Right. I turned 50. Old guy says what? <laughs> um, and That's right. You did turn 50. I turned 50. Well, on month. your vacation. Yes. yes I'm yes. a terrible friend. No, you're but not. But we should note this moment. You yeah. are. But I am old. You are uh, half a century <laughs> wise. All right, all right, all right. Um, and in the 80s and 90s, Blockbuster, of course, was the number one video rental store. They had 9,000 stores across uh, not only the country but around the world. But today, there is one Blockbuster store it's like in, in Alaska, Oregon. Right? It's in Oregon. Oregon. Uh, Bend, Oregon. And, um, and so I just asked the question, what happened to Blockbuster? Right? What happened was that the world changed, but they didn't. They thought that people would always want to come into their physical buildings in person to rent videos. And then this company called Netflix came around and said, you know, let's try streaming movies no, online. At first it was, let's try mailing people DVDs yeah. to their homes. Yes, yes. Um, and Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix. But they said, you know what, no, we're going to invest our time, our energy, and our resources into the thing we've always done. And that was their downfall. And um, just thinking about the Blockbuster story really helped me think about this moment we're in as the church, as we go back to in-person, but also need to have um, a commitment to hybrid ministry. And um, Define hybrid. Hybrid ministry is valuing, investing in um, your in-person ministry as much as you do your online ministry, that your online ministry is just as much church, just as much family, just as much ministry as what you do in the building. It's not the secondary ministry with, you know, what's in person, the real ministry, and that's kind of the side ministry. No, it is just as much. And so you've got to engage those people. You've got to create, you've got to build community. And um, I read somewhere or heard somewhere, it may have been in another podcast, that um, there are really going to be three types of churches post-pandemic. That one, number one, many churches are going to say, you know, all that YouTube and video stuff we did during the pandemic, that's all done. Let's go back to what we used to do. Other churches, the vast majority, are going to say, um, you know, there's some value in that online stuff, but um, we're just going to kind of set up a camera in the back Mm -hmm. of the sanctuary and press record, go online, and that's it, right? They're really not going to engage people. And then there's going to be the third, the smallest group that really invests in their online ministry. And um, I ended the article by uh, remembering when I was 16, um, I wasn't a member of any church. I wasn't even a church attender. Uh, But I had an after-school job at a grocery store 20 minutes from my house. And... um, during the drive, I would listen to Christian radio, and I would mostly listen to Charles Stanley, First Baptist Church Atlanta, and Tony Evans, um, Oak Cliff Bible Church in Dallas. And um, I became a believer through those radio ministries. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm grateful that someone invested in those ministries, and they had no idea that some kid in suburban Memphis would listen to that program, Mm -hmm. become a believer, and later become a minister of the gospel. And I think we have to have that kind of mindset as we enter into uh, this next season. Yeah, I think what we need to get is that everything in our life is hybrid now. Mm -hmm. I mean, even even people who really were late adapters to computers, they probably have a smartphone in their pocket right now. And they probably are beginning to see the benefit of maybe they'll go to the specialty grocery store and wander through the aisles, but they'll order their staple groceries to be delivered to their door. And yes, they'll go to a movie theater, but they'll probably purchase their ticket first online. And if they are going to... Um, they need to find a new doctor, they're probably going to go online and read reviews and or go to social media and ask for recommendations. And so things that are in person are are also partially those processes are online. And I, I think, um, and the people at MechMen had a conference about this a couple of years ago that was really helpful for me to understand that, you know, the old model was reach more people by building another campus and building another physical brick and mortar location. And and now I, I think it really makes sense to say you don't need another physical location and you don't need to be w- closer to where people are physically. You don't need even your physical space to be convenient to pe- where people live. What you need to do is be present virtually because then you know, people can download podcasts and listen to sermons on their way in. Members can say, oh, my niece was asking a question about this and my pastor preached something about it or I read a, you know, a quote and, you know, just making it so that you're, you need to think of the virtual space as kind of breadcrumbs that lead people into um, the body of Christ. And I think there will always be physical community at the heart of the body of Christ because we I mean, Jesus was incarnate, right? Like bodies matter in 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 the um, in the faith, and not everyone feels safe walking in the front door of a sanctuary. And so, allowing people to become to meaningfully participate in your community virtually, what that means is people can feel get brave enough to step into the physical space. And and so I I think it's really important that. It's not about saying, oh, gosh, I want my church to be bigger. I want a media empire. It's about evangelism. It's about, you know, doing what those um, men did for you when you were a kid, which is they didn't say, well, Yolanda, if you want to meet Jesus, you need to get up on a Sunday morning, drive to our church, put on some church clothes, mm-hmm. and come in and sit and listen. They allowed you to encounter Jesus um, spiritually at the where you were, they met you where they you were, mm-hmm. and we need to we need to do that for folks, and to be aware that it's not about necessarily who's liking things or sharing them or the metrics. It's about right. casting our bread on the waters and saying like we believe that what God is doing here is valuable and good, and so we're going to share it and free of charge and no expectations, and it's not transactional. It's just about sharing sharing the goodness of God in the ways that we can. And what the Mech ministry people were saying, which is really helpful, is they were like, you talking to all of, you know, pastors from different churches, I mean, the guy was saying, like, you have no idea how much money we spent in the early days to 
do, you know, to put things online. Like it just required so much expertise and so much equipment and so much money. And, and now any pastor can do what we used to spend thousands and thousands of dollars and need a whole staff. Like any pastor can do this. You, you have in your pocket the ability to pick up your phone and record a video and say, Hey, I was thinking about this and I'm sharing it with you and God bless you and put it out there and let the spirit do whatever the spirit wants to with it. And I I think that's really, really important is just to, just to see that you have a a physical campus and that will always matter. And you have a digital campus and you're going to serve both of those communities, not in a like marathon, kill yourself grueling way, but you have all the time in the world to serve both of those communities and to just to trust God, to do whatever God wants to with your attempt at faithfulness. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you thinking about? Well, I wrote it down. What did I write down? Uh, I was thinking about. Uh, I was thinking about talking about the Fourth of July, but maybe maybe we save that for another another podcast. Um, I actually um, just ran a, a friend of mine, um, Greg Bentley who is one of the co-moderators of the PCUSA right now, um, who I've gotten to know um, through doing some work um, serving on a board for the denomination, which I will say um, my motivation for doing that is um, I really, really enjoy meeting people who um, I'm I'm serving with. And, and there are just a lot of people who I really deeply admire and respect. And um, he um, quoted something on social media yesterday, um, a quote from a book. And oh, shoot, I was trying to find it online, but he also texted it to me so I can find it there, um, that I immediately went and ordered because it was so, so good. Um, and it is called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Creeder, K-R-E-I-D-E-R. Um, and this is not a book I would have picked up. Um, it would not have occurred to me. And and he sent me a quote, and basically the author introduced a new term called habitus. And let me see if I can blow this up and read the actual um, quote that I thought was so great. Um, so habitus is um, bodily behavior. And then this is the quote from this historian. The sources rarely indicate that the early Christians grew in number because they won arguments. Instead, they grew because their habitual behavior, rooted in patience, was distinctive and intriguing. Their habitus, a term I have learned from French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, enabled them to address intractable problems that ordinary people faced in ways that offered hope. And when challenged about their ideas, Christians pointed to their actions. They believed that their habitus, their embodied behavior, was eloquent. Their behavior said what they believed. It was an enactment of their values. And I just love everything about that, right? That um, if we believe that the people in our community are, are gifts from God and that we're to live as brothers and sisters together, then then I mean, that's fine. You can preach a sermon about it. You can put a slogan on a t-shirt, but what is, um, what's your habit, what's your practice? Like your practice is, is really your, is really your preaching. I mean, it's your proclamation. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I was saying like, I, I really appreciated him sharing that with me. And we were just talking a little bit via text about how, 
you know, the, the danger, and I don't think it's unique to our church, but the danger is we just like to talk about ideas and we like to argue about doctrine or we like to sit around a table and theorize. Um, and in some ways it's attractive because we all got to go to seminary and learn big words and it feels like, you know, well, we had to do that for something. So let's go ahead and, you know, and show it off and, and do this thing that only we can do. And what we what we tend to look down on and despise is is the real meat. I would argue like all of those big words and, you know, quoting theologians and using Greek terms, like that's milk actually. The real meat of being Christian is how do we live together in community? And I, I also think that sometimes we get it backwards and we say like, okay, the community exists so that we can do stuff for God or so that we can run programs and ministries that will make a spectacle in the world and then people will see it and then people will come to Jesus instead of really recognizing that, you know, the battle is won and so our community is our proclamation and so our community then needs to look like the kingdom of God, which is going to push us not to be satisfied with community that's comfortable and familiar and easy and not to say like, well, because we've done this great thing that that somebody wrote an article about in the paper, that means we've, quote, succeeded as a church. No, faithfulness requires, are we able to share real community and life together with people that, that we would not naturally sit next to, live next to, work with, right? Like that, the community... And, and so the habitus, I mean, it, it comes about by we have to learn different ways and different values and, and different ways to value people and different ways to handle conflict and different ways to keep showing up if, what we're, if we're in a kind of community that pushes us beyond our comfort zones and makes it impossible not to want to bear one another's burdens. And so anyway, I just, I, I've been thinking about that and I'm grateful to you. Um, to Greg for pointing it out and and also just uh, the patience part right that you are living together in community and not expecting somebody to hand you an award for that but just trusting in the deep slow work of the Lord and saying like even if it's not visible that doesn't mean it's not real and to come full circle to sort of see the beauty and the power and the glory of the struggle to be community. And even if the experts and the judges don't award you top marks for that, that doesn't mean that you're not still right to allow the spirit to lead you to be church in a new way, even if it's not a way that people um, value right now. Like, so Yeah, it does remind me of Jesus talking about mustard seeds and Mm -hmm. um, you know, small, seemingly insignificant, multi-ethnic, intercultural congregations who struggle. Where, where not many are wise, according to yes. worldly sources, not many are wealthy, according to worldly perspective, not many are powerful. Like, it looks mm -hmm. like... It doesn't look like much. It doesn't look like much. And, and yet... God chooses what is not to shame the things that are, right? Like, again, it's one thing to preach a big, huge sermon about it. It's another thing to go seek out community where you're like, well, this better be true or else I've really invested my whole life in something that doesn't matter. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think our church is 
need to look like that. Um, and and I'm I'm grateful for finding just you know affirmation in unexpected places like a church history book. I I it back and I was like, thank you so much. Is great. It is. It, I think you would like church history more than theology. And I know you're, well, you're not hey, a huge fan. The list of, of what I would like more than theology. I mean, I would like a root canal better than theology. So yes, agreed. <laughs> but that is not the affirmation you intended to be. Well, anyway. I, I think early church history is really exciting and um, yeah. inspiring. Well, and the early church history is where it's at, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm not even as interested, bless them, in the Reformation stuff as in the really early church history stuff. So anyway, I, I didn't say that out loud. Don't come for me. Don't at me. <laughs> what are you preaching about this Sunday? Oh, let's see. I think um, <laughs> even though I've said I was going to do this for several, several weeks, <laughs> I think I may finally... Okay, Lucy. <laughs> I may finally get to Nehemiah. Um, as we return to in-person services, just this whole idea of, you know, in Nehemiah, they're returning to Jerusalem, and um, they've left exile in Babylon, and they've returned to the city of Jerusalem, but it's it's in rubbles, and they need to re... It's in rubble, and they need to rebuild it, and um, it's hard work, and there's opposition, and um, they get tired and frustrated and discouraged, and I want to go there. And I, I want to, I, I may use your your illustration that you just gave about a marathon, having to run a second marathon, because mm-hmm. um, that's really powerful. Um, because I think there are many in our community who do not yet see the mm-hmm. marathon, who in their hearts and minds think we are crossing the finish line. Uh, we made it through the pandemic, which is true, and we will celebrate that. And what is also true is that there, there is a, a new race to run. And um, it is, and, and some, for sure, in our community already see it and already in the midst of it and are already overwhelmed by it. Yeah. And I think this uh, text from Nehemiah, I think Nehemiah chapter four, really speaks to everyone in our community about where we are in this moment as we return uh, to in-person services and look forward to... Um, this next season. Well, I will send you the article that this woman wrote, and I'm sorry I can't remember her name because it was definitely not my not my observation, not my metaphor. But I'll but I'll send it to you because because it was great because I think also her ultimate point is really valid in saying like because I think Nehemiah is like I don't have time to come down, I've got work to do, and her point was it's not that we don't have to go on this next long journey, but that we don't have to we don't have to run full out. We don't, you know, and I feel like that's part of what Nehemiah does is he says no to some of the drama trauma that Sanballat and Tobias show up with and want to say, you know, this is, you know, this is dangerous or this is treason or that. And he's just like, no, it's this, I'm rebuilding a wall and I'm going to keep rebuilding it. And and I'm not going to, I'm just not going to, I know what I need to do. I need to take the next step. And I think that's that's the the gift of it is to say, hey, we don't know what church is going to look like in six months. And also, we don't need to know. What we need to know is how to take the next step. Wow. That and, was the title of my article, <laughs> The Next Step of oh, Faithfulness. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> oh, look at that. Look at, look at, look at God. Look at, <laughs> it's enough to make you believe in the Holy Spirit. I say that all the time. And, and one time I said that, and somebody I was talking to looked at me and was like, but 
But we do believe in the Holy Spirit. I'm like, yes, I'm sorry. We do. I'm, I'm, I'm being sarcastic, and that is the lowest form of humor, and I'm sorry. Yes, this is, a, yeah. Anyway. Um, what are yeah. you preaching? So we are starting a new sermon series called Letters from Prison, and we're going to um, look at some portions of the four letters that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned, or the four letters where he specifically says, I'm, I'm writing this um, letter to you from prison, and I'm going to try to pair them with different letters that were written by believers in prison at other times in human history. And just, um, I mean, A, I, I always want to push myself to, to preach some Paul because I don't like theology, but I do like Pauline Christology. Like, I think that Paul has a very bad reputation and people people think they hate Paul. And I'm going to say like, no, I, I, mostly people hate the five or six verses that have been pulled out of context from Pauline letters. Yes. And mostly people hate, and rightly so, some of the ways that people have twisted and malformed yes. those to basically recreate the hierarchy of the world inside the church. And so, mm. um, you, but, but when you actually look at Paul and his vision of what Jesus has done and what life in the body of Christ looks like, it's just... It's so radical. It's so expansive. It's so beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Like everything that I'm going after in church, honestly, like I I love the Gospels, but you, you, you can't really look directly to Jesus to describe what life in the church is like because that you can make inferences based on what Jesus was doing. On, but like Paul is the one who's talking about this is how you apply the the truth that Jesus revealed to the context of real human people with real weaknesses and real strengths and real different backgrounds coming together and how you have to have right expectations and expect that people's broken edges are going to catch on other people's wounded places. And then you don't have to freak out and you don't have to segregate, but you can lean in and, you know, apply some of the truths that Jesus revealed to us in his life and see that, the Holy Spirit is still alive and at work and sufficient to build and heal and grow the body of Christ. So I, I love Paul. I don't love what people have done with him, but I love Paul. So I'm excited that this series will um, get us into some portions. And obviously, like, you can't, you cannot preach. I mean, well, <laughs> who am I talking to? So if you are Yolando, you can preach one letter letter of Paul over 16 weeks, which honestly, like as much as I rib you about that, I do think like that's what you have to do. If you want to preach a letter mm -hmm. of Paul, you got to break it down and be just willing to sit there for a long time. And what you really then get is this beautiful systematic theology that's worth the time. But obviously I'm not doing that, looking at four letters in four weeks. So what I'm doing is just pulling a tiny little piece out of each letter and just a concept that I think probably this idea that there's there's something that we think we understand that we we don't understand. And and so this week we're talking about unity and how in Ephesians 4 he's talking about unity and how we need to um as far as as far as it is possible with us live within the unity of the spirit and but unity doesn't look like uniformity and it doesn't look like absence of hard conversations or brave conversations. Mm -hmm. And so the letter I want to pair it with is King's letter from a Birmingham jail and talk about, you know, if you look at that through the perspective of the world, 
you would be tempted, and I do mean tempted, to see like, oh, that's divisive. And he was causing pain to the other pastors he was writing to. And that's not unity and that's not love. And I think we need to to flip the script and be able to understand that unity isn't just saying, <clears throat> well, I'm, I, I have irreconcilable differences with you and I'm just going to have to live with them all you know, all these days of our life, and maybe someday when we get to heaven, Jesus will do something with it. That true unity is saying, like, no, I believe, I take you seriously as my brother in Christ. These are all men who are talking about, I take you seriously as my brother in Christ, and I do believe there's one Lord, one body, one spirit, one baptism. And so if I am doing what the Lord is calling me to do, that I'm not called to um, endure you, I am called to invite you into this work with me, which means we have to have a conversation about what is true. And I don't need to talk about you and I don't need to write you off. I need to talk to you directly. And, you know, one person who would have really approved of that is Paul, because Paul, when he wrote to his congregations, when he saw that they were really dangerously getting off track, he didn't just go there, there, that you're just doing the best you can and Jesus will help you and it'll be all fine. No, he would write them and say, what are you doing? You can't get circumcised. Have you lost your minds? You know, and I think that, you know, King was writing the same kind of letter and we shouldn't see that as a sign of divisiveness. We should see that as a sign of deep, deep unity that he knew there was one truth. And so he was reaching out to his brothers and in a spirit of humility saying like, look, you're, you're wrong <laughs> and it matters. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to show you that. Um, and, and I just thought of a, a biblical narrative that illustrates both um, a brave conversation and um, the truth that unity isn't simply go along to get along. And that's the, that place in the book of Acts where um, Peter is being hypocritical yep. and he is um, uh, behaving one way with, um, with Christians Gentiles. of a Jewish background and behaving another way, eating other things with uh, Christians uh, uh, from a Greek or Gentile background. And Paul confronts him, the text is to, to his face. Yeah. It's just like, you are, and he says, you are not acting in line with the gospel. Mm -hmm. And they have a brave conversation. Right. And, and, you know, I think the American view of Christianity would be like, oh, brilliant solution, Peter. You're making this group happy and you're making that group happy and you're sort of on both sides. And sure, one side is wrong, but just let them, just let them, just, just let them. It, it doesn't matter. There doesn't need to be real unity. And I mean, there does need to be real unity. And I think that's so helpful as the body of Christ that we, we need to be able to say, hey, it matters if, if we are in, in different churches or we can't even have conversations about the real lived experiences of our brothers and our sisters, we can't just go like, oh, well, this is how it is. It's not how it is in the kingdom of God. And we're in the kingdom of God, not someday, but this day. So we need yeah, to one of the most challenging things for me about social media, um, especially the world of YouTube, um, and also Facebook, but I'm much less engaged there, is this uh, tendency of Christians, especially well-known Christians, to really call out and reject other Christians who have some difference of theology. It's not, let's have a conversation. It's, no, you are now the, if you think that, then right. you are now my enemy. I want nothing to do with right. you. Which is so crazy when you say we're doing this in the name of the one 
who left heaven to come down and dwell among us and gave his very life for the people who were killing him. So to say, in the name of Jesus, I'm rejecting you, my enemy, is just, yeah. it's an insane, I mean, the enemy is shrewd. <laughs> All right, so we've been talking for a long, long time, and we are grateful that you are listening to us, and we went through the whole, we did the whole, we did it all, right? Yes. Okay. You're looking at me like, he's looking at me like I'm crazy. No, There's that, a reason that we don't. Is, that was my affirming, yes, you're on the right track. Okay. Let's. Well, <laughs> awkward. We haven't done this in a while. We're going to be smoother next week. Thank you for listening. If you want to find out more about the next step at Derrida Presbyterian Church, he's just like howling over there silently. Um, check them out online, D-E-R-I-T-A-Pres.org, and you can um, find old messages of Yolando's, timeless messages of lovely, Yolando's lovely. on their Podbean uh, website. Um, look for the Derrida Church um, podcast, and you can worship with Derrida in person or online um, every Sunday. Or will you be doing a video on, you're going to upload We're it to YouTube later? Facebook Live, and we'll Facebook upload Live. to okay. Yeah. yeah, perfect. So so join them and look at their YouTube channel. You can get old content and new content. And if you want to find out more about what's happening at The Grove, you can go to our website, thegrovecharlotte.org, and you can check out sermons on our podcast, which has a little bit of updating to do, but um, it is The Grove Church Podcast on iTunes or wherever Ever. you get your podcasts. And if you want to worship with us on Sunday, that would be so great. You could join us in person at 10 or on the Facebook live stream also at 10. So thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.